Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God, our Father, and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Our text today for this last Sunday of the church year is from the Gospel of St. Matthew, 25th chapter. These words from our Gospel reading, Then the King will say to those on his right hand, Come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food, and I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink, and I was a stranger, and you took me in. And naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry? So far our text, dear friends in our Lord Jesus Christ. Not so many days ago, earlier this month, the world observed a day most significant to the shape of the way things are. The way that things as we know them to be. Can you think of the day? Well, it may not be a, a bad guess at all. Veterans Day or Armistice Day, the day that ended World War I, is not the day that I'm thinking of. No, but actually a day before that. Not November 11th, but November 10th. November 10th. Yes, November 10th. A day that did so much to change the world as we know it. But most of us hadn't noticed the 10th of November come and go this year, just as most of the world never noticed 525 years ago. When in 1483, on a cold November 10th, in a German village, a baby boy was born to Hans and Margaret Luther, and they named their son Martin. Now, I'd suppose that if one were to ask whether or not we noted the birthday of Martin Luther, this great reformer, this highly prominent figure in the annals of world history, if one would ask if we noted the birthday of Martin Luther as it came and went, most of us, pastors included, would most likely answer, when was this now? I hadn't noticed. Friends, on the last day, when Christ Jesus draws the curtain on time as we know it and the world as we know it and returns to this world upon the clouds and as we heard in the gospel reading descends upon those clouds and sends his angels out to the far reaches of the world to gather together both the blessed those who will stand at his right hand and the cursed those to stand at his left hand he'll say to those at his right hand Come and inherit the kingdom prepared for you. And then he'll say, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. A stranger, you took me in. Naked, you clothed me. Sick and imprisoned, and you visited me. And their answer? Their answer will be the same answer you and I would probably give if one asked us if we noted Luther's birthday. Lord, when was this? We hadn't noticed. We hadn't noticed. Quite literally, you heard it said earlier, when to you, Lord, did we do these things? Our Lord Jesus, today, this morning in his word, having told us that even these things done unto the least of his brethren are done unto him, knowing this, it's surprising perhaps that these things 
are not the foremost things on their minds. Because, surprising, because at first glance it really does appear that our standing before God, whether to his right or to his left, depends quite a bit upon the mouths fed, or the thirst we've quenched, or the poor that we've clothed, the sick that we've imprisoned, rather that, or the sick or imprisoned that we've visited. At first glance it would seem that it's really not a bad idea at all to keep quite close and meticulous record of and tally up a scorecard of sorts of the things that we've done for other people. Indeed, many do. And so we might quite naturally think to ourselves, well, why would I not then count and meticulously record and then recall those things? Every fiber of our old sinful self is bent on contributing something, isn't it? Bent on contributing something, even the very least bent on wanting our efforts to count towards something or count for something when it comes to our standing before God. Fact is that those at Christ's right hand won't recall and wouldn't recall because, frankly, they've not kept the meticulous record. It's not that they far out-supplied good works, far exceeding some quota of hungry mouths fed and, and thirsty served. Actually, it's for the very opposite reason. They haven't kept track because they know well that they don't stand in God's grace by the number of mouths fed or sick treated or poor clothed. They know well standing there that day that they're not qualitatively or of themselves quantitatively superior to anyone else standing to their right or to their left. We know it too, don't we? We know it well too. We're, we're well aware that our lives, Christians though we may be, our lives are no more perfect, no less filled with pain, no less afflicted by and infected with the everyday sin and the sin of every day. And the fallout of it, no less than anyone else's life, our sins are just as real. The damage is just as done. The hurt is just as deep. But your best efforts, your most efforts, a sheep out of you they will not make. The sheep will stand at his right hand that day not because of their efforts, be they great or small, but because of the efforts of one shepherd who died for a world that so loved to wander. The sheep stand as sheep that day because of a series of other little-noticed, little-noted incidents that were anything but incidental, incidents through which the Son of God was preparing the kingdom. For recall, it was in a little out-of-the-way and rather unassuming town named Bethlehem where shepherds were watching their sheep one night, a night that would have passed the world by unnoticed were it not for God's attention to it. It was in this place on this particular, not particularly noticeable Judean night that an unassuming Galilean girl in an unmarked and unassuming stable would deliver God's deliverer into a world that so desperately needed deliverance, but frankly hadn't noticed. 
And it went virtually unnoticed by the world all around him, that for the sake of the world all around him, this Son of Mary, yet only begotten of God, this Jesus, the Christ, lived a life without spot and without blemish, with no mark of purpose or even accidental sin of which to speak, so that he would be the perfect sacrifice. A life lived perfectly for sheep and goat alike, mind you. For recall the text, Jesus says, Hell is something that was never intended for man, but for the devil and his angels. He lived a life virtually, though unnoticed by the world around him, but for the world, the whole world around him, he lived a life for sheep and goat alike that was perfect. For every man, every woman, every last child born into the world, so that he could offer himself as the perfect sacrifice. A sacrifice of cosmic proportions, he would be in an event the magnitude of which the world had never before seen and never again would see. An event much of the world so self-absorbed never did have the time to see or the care to notice. For it was at Calvary on a rather nondescript hillside outside the city walls of Jerusalem, while the world casually passed by, the world's creator hung upon the cross. While the world gave it not, not much more than a passing glance, the angels of heaven in captivated amazement and the host of hell in paralyzed horror beheld with the utmost attention, the most notable gesture of God's love for creatures that had such little regard for him. There in the most notable and important moment that time ever recorded, God the Father delivered over his Son. And his Son was so willingly delivered over to stand in judgment. Because you see, that Good Friday was Judgment Day. It was God's Judgment Day upon all sin. Christ there stood in the stead of all the sin stained, every last one of us. That was Friday. Good Friday, it was Judgment Day, and Sunday's empty tomb was the verdict announced for all the world to hear. You are judged not guilty, because Christ was judged guilty. And that's, friends, that's notable. That's notable. But note this well, too. The stable where Jesus once rested his head has been forgotten in a sense. No one could tell you exactly, exactly where in Bethlehem it was that the Son of God was born into this world. The, the precise plot of earth where, where God's Son bore the weight of the sins of the whole world upon that cross. It too has become a casualty of sorts, of history's inattention. And even while the world has lost track of these notable places of salvation history past, even while their location is now uncertain, it need bother us none. Why? For now he has located salvation not in some faraway manger, not in, on some rocky and barren hillside, not in some place where dead men lie, 
He's located the fruit of his preparation right here. Right here. Right here in this place. Right here where sinners all are declared by his word righteous. And they're sanctified by nothing short of his word. By his sacraments. Here is where the shepherd calls sheep. Here is where the shepherd makes sheep. Where he gathers sheep and where he feeds his sheep. Unnoticed, though it may be by the world all around, this, for the sake of the whole world all around, this, and through the means God gives here, the means of his grace is where God justifies sinners and makes them the right hand righteous who will inherit the kingdom that he, by beams of wood and nails and blood, sweat and agonizing tears, the kingdom that he's prepared. Feeding hungry mouths and quenching parched lips and clothing those without, visiting those that are sick, those in prison, attending to those in your family that so need the care. Sharing a kind word with one who really could use it. These don't make the sheep. These don't make the sheep. For remember well, you heirs of the kingdom, an inheritance is never earned. You're born into it. Or should I say you're baptized into it. When Christ Jesus in our text mentions all those things done by those made righteous, he mentions them not Mind you, well, not as the cause of their being sheep. Their being sheep and not goats. They're mentioned as the public evidence that they are indeed already. Already they are sheep. Evidence, the natural fruit of faith. They're already sheep and and not goats. For without faith, says the writer of Hebrews, it's impossible to please God. Martin Luther famously said it this way. He said, faith alone saves, but faith is never alone. St. Paul said it like this. By grace you've been saved through faith. Remember, the the just, they shall stand. They're saved. The, The just shall live by faith. He said, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But then he adds this. And he adds this, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So why on the last day would we not first and foremost recall good works accomplished through us? It's because Paul said that's what we've been created anew in Christ Jesus to do. Simply what we're created to do. I ask you, does the sun, the creature that it is, does the sun, dear friends, keep track of where its rays goes and who benefits from its warmth? Does the moon record for whom and for how many it has lighted a dark night's path? Or do the stars note how many ships they faithfully guided across across oceans deep and then back home again? 
Do the winds number how many sails they've filled or, filled or how many weary travelers they've refreshed along the, the path? Do the clouds mark where they've delivered their rains? Do the mountains tally the number who've ever taken refuge in their folds and veils and crevices? Or do the trees keep count of all the fruit that they've yielded for the good of others? Of course not. Because it's what they've been created to do. And so you, and so me. It was a sunny June day. The multitude, or what seemed like one, of students was assembled. They were all all standing there in, in alphabetical order. They donned their uniform gowns, and their caps, and the tassels hung. Their instructors had told them how it would be. They'd rehearsed it all in their minds time and again before. And now the time had come. You know the scene. Maybe you've even lived the scene. Graduation day. The late Dr. Kurt Marquardt, professor of our Fort Wayne Seminary, once said, a Christian need never, ever fear judgment day. Because he said it's like graduation day. It's certainly no surprise. No surprise at all when one's name is announced in the degree and all that pertaining to is conferred. It's no surprise at all. It's really only the public testimony and acknowledgement of what has already been done. Christ won you. He's done it. It's been done. And he's applied to you what he won for you as he's doing right here today. He's done it. It's done. He's made you what you are. Sheep forgiven. Forgiven though your sins may be and have been as scarlet, you stand that day white as wool. That's fitting for sheep, isn't it? White as wool. Where would your sins be? Note that from the text. Not, that the, the king makes not a mention of all of the mouths that should have been fed. All of the visits that should have been made. All of the words that should have been said. Where are these things on that day? As far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed them from you. And then, dear friends... That day, his judgment demonstrated by the evidence of the works that naturally follow from faith, his judgment demonstrated for all the world to see to be fair and to be just. He'll then say to you what may be regarded as one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. He'll say to you, now come. Thou blessed of my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you. And you will. And Jesus concludes his sermon with this promise. And then the righteous will go into eternal life. And you will. Until that day, the church will pray. As we do close this church year, 
Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.